knew that, right? This is in San Francisco. I'll drown it on. I'll, it's nap time. Weekly comedy at the best neighborhood bar in the city. Join your friends from Mutiny Radio every Thursday at 8 p.m. at the Bar on Dolores at 29th and Dolores. Starting after any very important sports game that might happen to be on, you're guaranteed a night of laughter for free. And when paired with the drink specials and the nicest bartender in San Francisco, it'll become a Thursday ritual. Show up to go out for comics, and please reserve your free tickets on Eventbrite so we know you're coming to laugh. is when the comedy is the cheapest. Happy hour, the most free two hours of hour-long comedy on the radio and internet streaming live at 278.21st Street. Come down, be in the audience. Dog-friendly. Dog fri- we are. Mutiny Radio is absolutely dog-friendly. A dog party. Ain't no party like a dog party. Dog party at Mutiny Radio. Every Friday, dog party at Mutiny Radio. Happy hour. Two seven eight one twenty first Street. Happy hour. Mutiny Radio. Dot FM. Here in Dot SF. Calling all crusties, punks, and poses. Pick your posteriors up off the pavement. Pack up your pins and patches and prepare to party. The Pacific Northwest Vest Fest returns this Saturday only at the SeaTac Expo Center. Whether you're a leather lover or just a denim demon, if you're looking to dress to impress for less, do not stress. You'll find all the best in pre-distressed vests right here at the Pacific Northwest Vest Fest. With over 40 vendors selling countless crossover styles, you'll find the perfect thing for your scene. Metal, thrash, Walmart, high-vis, and everything in between. All in one place. One day only. Unless it's a jacket. If you need a jacket, take your square ass somewhere else. Never pay for fabric you don't need and ditch the sleeves, but save the rest for the Pacific Northwest Fest Fest this Saturday only at SeaTac. Bring a can of PBR, get it half price. Daddy, Daddy, what are we going to do today? At 2 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon? Oh, over there at the parklet in front of Atlas Cafe for Titans of Comedy. That, that's Titans of Comedy. Apparently, they've got great sandwiches, cafe drinks, and even some of my favorite beverages, like beer, wine, and sangria. All the things I drink to forget your mother. I knew Uncle Blake says you smell like a brewery. What did I say about interrupting me? Anywho, right here on 20th and Alabama in the Deep Mission, paired with tasty comedy from Bay Area's favorite comics. For free! Every Saturday, or at least the two Saturdays a month that the court mandates I have to see you. It's sunshine! And even in a drizzle, but not too much. Hey, Daddy, remember after soccer practice when it was raining and you didn't come? I really don't. Anywho. You take it with the freezers. Reservations. Reservations on Eventbrite. Fucking. L-S-D. Fap. Acid and fapping. Fapping and acid. Acid and fapping. Fapping and acid. Fap, 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 acid. Thank you. That song is called Acid and Fapping. Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. Listen to live streaming radio. 
or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco. I was just leaving the theater. Convertible. 1969 gold Cadillac with a white material and I drove it up here. And I started to do some thinking. around in it on the freeway and I'm having a really, really good time. Flat black glass. Smoking big spliffs and cruising that Cadillac on the freeway. Good feeling, I'll tell you. Can I see? Jesus. I am Henry, alias and adolescent. And I will cut the damn shit. Henry! Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your, uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. Captain Curls, up in the head. Mutiny Radio Festival, ahoy. Ah, very good. Ah, very good, Legless Joe.
No mother, no father to wipe away my tears. That's why I will cry. I feel scared, but I won't show my fears. I keep my head high, deep in my heart. I never have any doubt about it.
And that, my friend, was the great Nina Simone. I shall be released to Bob Dylan. But before that, we had The Clash. The police are on me. 
And before that, a remarkable video on which you heard the audio part of it called Palestine Will Be Free. And I uh, recommend you go look at the website. Go look at the website and watch the video of a little girl against the Israeli tank. It'll touch ya. This is the B, and you're listening to Labor and Love Radio. And we're all together here on Mutiny Radio, 2781 21st Street, in the heart of the mission. Labor songs, labor history, labor culture, labor opinion, you name it, we got it, labor. Let's see what we got this week for you. Think of us as a weekly news magazine. With all the talk about the... uh, about settling the UAW strike and the good contract that the workers have achieved. We're going to look back and talk a little about one of the people who was instrumental in building the power of the UAW, Walter Reuter. How are UESF teachers doing? And they're campaign with SFUSD. GM reaches a tentative strike with UAW. We'll talk about that, of course. In the bituation room, we've got some celebs call for a ceasefire, others embarrass themselves. A ceasefire an end to the shooting of civilians. Labor history in two. Will Rogers, the Greensboro Massacre, 16 Tons by Merle Travis. Merle Travis sang the song of working people. Anyway, 16 tons. Union reports no progress on efforts to end actors' strike. And, as always, radio labor. Let's take a look at Let's take a look. Okay. Forgot to mention the fact that we're going to hear a a video, oral side of a video, talking about an important victory in the 19th, San Diego. 
where workers from the IWW realized that they were being forbidden to speak in public on a soapbox at an area where it had been acceptable. City fathers moved against them. And the upshot of it is the free speech campaign in 1913, I believe. Anyway, we'll find out about that, too. Let's open up a credo or two. Credos are the things we believe in here. Whether you agree or not, listen up. You know? Get another point of view. All right, our credos. Immigrants, immigrants. Can I tell you a secret? I don't even care if there are undocumented immigrants in this country. Without Social Security numbers and they aren't privy to the welfare people claim they get. You hear that all the time. Ah, they come in. Get on welfare. Sure. No, who wants to work? I mean, the vast majority of them are normal people trying to live a better life. This whole wall thing. Deport the elite. There's an invasion going. Is just the 1% trying to convince you that the fact, the reason we're all poor, instead of realizing the reason we're all poor, is really due to vast income inequality and resource price inflation in combination with wage stagnation. Use your brains. The existence of another poor person is not why you're poor. It's because the people who control everything refuse to increase your wages. Yes. The reason you're poor is you're not getting paid enough. How about that? Credos, credos, credos. How about... When the penalty for aborting after rape is more severe than the penalty for rape, that's when you know it's a war on women. The man in, e in every situation, you hear people like this. It's the man who makes the decision, whether it's the man who help make the baby or it's the man who's got access to information 
quote-unquote information or the man who's making the law. It's men taking power from women. You know it's a war on women. One more. Kids don't have a little brother working in the coal mine. They don't have a little sister coughing her lungs out in the looms of the big mill towns in the Northeast. Why? Because we organized. We broke the back of sweatshops in this country. We have child labor laws. Those were not benevolent gifts from enlightened management. They were fought for, they were bled for, they were died for by working people, by people like us. Kids ought to know that. That's why I sing these songs. That's why I tell these stories. No root, no fruit. Well, this one, uh, you have to qualify. Most of us, as we were growing up, assumed, just assumed, that child labor was gone. Worldwide child labor is alive and well. Hundreds of millions of kids wake up every day and don't go to school. They go to work. That's how they spend their youth. At any way, hopefully this new strength that unions are gaining. People are becoming more positive about unions in general. Maybe we can strike again at child labor. All right. This is Labor and Love Radio. I want to read you an advertisement. Friend of Labor and Love. Let's see if we can get it. I'm referring to a restaurant restaurant in San Francisco in the Mission District called Los Jarritos. Therein lies a tale. Uh, restaurant has been in the Ibarra family since the 20s when it was in North Beach relocated to the mission. Uh, proprietor is a woman named Josie. She was a mover and a shaker. Woman with a big heart. So I asked Josie 
I could Okay, here it is. I found it finally. And here's how it goes. Como México no hay dos. Y como San Jalisco tampoco. For over 40 years, the Barra family has been serving up the very best in Mexican food to the people of San Francisco. What's your favorite? Enchiladas, tacos, chilaquiles, the ultimate in birria, best salsa and chips in town brought to you before you order. How about your favorite vegetarian omelets, burritos, and tacos? They got them. Find them all and more at San Jalisco, corner of 20th and South Venice, in the very heart of the mission. Come on down to San Jalisco where the food tells you you're in Mexico. Okay, this is also one of our credos. <laughs> go ahead, go by San 20th and South Venice. Los Jarritos. And when you go in there, tell them that you heard about it on Labor and Love Radio. Okay. I'm going to turn now to the San Diego free speech button. Sort of a milestone in the history of organizing and free speech organizing. The video is by Fred Glass, a well-known Bay Area labor video artist, uh, formerly the head of communications for the California Federation of Teachers. And uh, Jim Miller is prominent in the making of this. Jim Miller and his wife, Kelly. Um, it's one of those chapters in the past that would be lost. It was a time when workers stood up for themselves. And if it wasn't for videographers like this, all their courage, all their nerve, all their uh, righteousness. Would be wasted and gone. members of the industrial workers of the world, the IWW, and their allies in labor and the community engaged in a pitched battle against a city ordinance that banned public speaking in the area around 5th and E Streets in downtown San Diego. During the course of this struggle, many were arrested, beaten, and even killed for asserting their rights to public speech and assembly, for the simple right to stand on a soapbox and speak. While repression shut down the soapboxes at Fifth and E temporarily, the right to free speech was eventually restored to San Diegans in 1915 when the ban was overturned and legal picketing was established as a basic right. I'm a stranger here 
I've been uh, assaulted four times down here. I got a ticket for honking my horn five seconds in solidarity with uh, these brothers with the labor, and that was uh, illegal use of the horn. So our free speech uh, rights are being quashed here. The fight a hundred years ago was very much about that top percent, you know, Spreckles and the people who actually controlled San Diego through the police and through the city council were able to really suppress speech and we're seeing that happen again here and so you know people were complaining about how, how an encampment looks or how people smell or um, what what kind of things are going on there. It, it's very similar to what was going on there. There were safety and, and health hazards. Well it's the same excuses they used a hundred years ago. Oh, why don't you work like other folks do? How can I get a job when you're holding down too? Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, I'm a bum again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. San Diego, around the turn of the century, was run by real estate developers and boosters, in, led in large part by John D. Spreckles and their goal was to develop San Diego primarily as a retirement community for wealthy and well-to-do retirees from the Midwest and the East Coast who would move to San Diego and live on small subdivided irrigated properties developing the local citrus industry. San Diego was a small backwater. Um, it was a city that was trying to define itself against the two huge cities to the north, Los Angeles and San Francisco. So it really was a, a backwater of real estate interests and sort of get-rich-quick people, people coming for their health, people coming for the climate, um, people coming for a new start. So we have a city here who deliberately constructed itself as a postcard and has jealously guarded that image for almost its entire span. One way of thinking about the, the Panama, California exposition of 1915 is as a kind of coming out party for San Diego. So essentially what you had was a utopian vision for the elites that drew on the kind of California mission fantasy of the past to pre present a kind of romantic backdrop for the Anglos of the present to come and uh, create a San Diego that fit the Booster's vision. It had a, a gorgeous climate. It was next to the ocean. A lot of elites to the north, Hollywood, rich folks, came down to San Diego to partake of its climate and of its um, pleasures. Fatty Arbuckle and Mabel Norman came down to make a film about the exposition.
San Diego in the turn of the century was something close to one-man town, even more than Los Angeles. John Spreckles uh, controlled almost every industry and uh, was opposed by a small group of progressives, some of them famous, and, and by a small uh, branch of the, of the Socialist Party. He came from a moneyed family that had made their money in San Francisco. Uh, there were sugar barons in Hawaii. Um, he had real estate interests, railroad interests. He ran the union and had his hand in much of San Diego's economic and political uh, machinery. The other competing elite during this period was George Marston, um, perhaps a much more tolerant uh, version of San Diego's elite, uh, a proponent of the city beautiful, uh, someone who supported, you know, the rights of free speech of those people who disagreed with him. Um, and, and really you look at the two of them as, as kind of two possible visions of San Diego. Um, Marston's was the version of San Diego that lost that battle. Spreckles was the version of San Diego that won and a much heavier handed version of the San Diego elite. Conditions of labor in San Diego at the turn of the century were divided on ethnic and racial fault lines. Um, Mexican-American labor in large part with the economic and social dislocations that led to the Mexican Revolution had already precipitated large immigrant flows across the border. And San Diego developers, especially John D. Spreckles, had primarily utilized Mexican labor to undercut the wages of local white laborers and divide the workforce against itself. Work was um, very difficult. Most workers were paid um, barely what we would call a living wage in today's terms to be able to reproduce and support their families. Um, many workers ended up being unable to marry because they could not support and raise a family. Whenever I get all the money I earn, the boss will be broke and to work he must turn. Hallelujah, I'm a bomb. Hallelujah, I'm again. Hallelujah, give us a hand out to revive us again. In the American West, in the, in the early 20th century, agriculture still dependent on enormous army, 100,000 strong, basically a male, a single male bachelor uh, workers uh, of various ethnicities. And they harvested everything from oranges in Southern California to wheat on the Great Plains. And then during the winter, they would hole up in the skid rows of Western cities. And the Wobblies, of course, all of whom were experts in writing the uh, blinds and rods, uh, uh, hobos, organized in the field and they organized in the hobo camps, but the greatest concentration of, of migrant workers was in the skid rows during the winter. So it was absolutely essential to the organization of this working class uh, to be able to hold meetings and to be able to stand on a soapbox. I think one of the things that was really important about the IWW was the fact that 
they were willing to take in anyone. They were interested in not only people that were American citizens, but people that were, you know, involved in migrant labor. A significant aspect of the IWW was the recognition of the need to organize workers across borders, across barriers, and ultimately uniting the working class that was itself uh, largely immigrant or the children of immigrants. Free speech fights uh, involving both the Socialist Party and the IWW began around 1907 in Seattle and a uh, short fight, I believe, in San Francisco, and then to harvest centers uh, like Spokane on the Wheat Plains, uh, Missoula, Montana, and then eventually came to Fresno when the IWW began to organize workers in the Central uh, Valley. Stockton, there was a big free speech fight. The most famous of all, of course, uh, occurred in San Diego in 1912. And the free speech fight in San Diego, some believe, was precipitated um, at the agitation of General Harrison Gray Otis, who was the owner of the Los Angeles Times. who came to San Diego for a meeting in November of 1911 to suggest to the city fathers of San Diego that they repress free speech like Los Angeles just had out of concern that labor agitation would prevent the development of the city along the lines that the city fathers desired. One of the precipitating factors of the San Diego free speech fight was that the IWW had decided to cross the color line and organize Mexican-American workers in San Diego. In 1910, they had organized the workers of the San Diego Consolidated Gas and Electric Company, who primarily shoveled coal for the power plants owned by John D. Spreckles. And um, they had successfully won a strike and a pay raise. And the IWW in late 1911, early 1912, was in the process of organizing also the construction trades and building workers and the local city public works crews, which were also mostly primarily Mexican-American workers. It was here at the intersection of 5th and E that was the ground zero of the San Diego free speech fight. And here what the Wobblies did was set up soapboxes on the ground and stand up and give speeches such as, fellow workers and friends, how come you've got nothing and Spreckles has everything? It's time to join the one big union and take over the means of production. What happened as a result of this is it outraged the city's father, so Spreckles and his allies in the city council ended up passing an ordinance banning singing and speaking on the streets. Once the city passed Ordinance 4623, which banned speaking in the congested district of town, which nobody honestly believed was a congested district, the uh, people who felt that their speech was being repressed decided that they were going to nonviolently and passively resist by getting up and speaking anyways and risk arrest to challenge the law. Many who got up maybe made it through reading the beginning of the Declaration of Independence before they were pulled down off the soapbox by the police and arrested. And they were very quickly and immediately charged not with violating the ordinance, but with conspiracy to violate the ordinance, which would be a felony charge. 
and then this ban was met with resistance by the IWW. There were hundreds of people arrested, taken off of soapboxes as soon as they said fellow workers and friends. They filled the jails, and then this was followed by a round of vigilante violence. The Wobblies were the last people you wanted to put in jail cells. Uh, for one thing, they drove the jailers nuts. They were constantly singing and chanting, and they developed a whole repertoire of, of tactics and things called like building, I think it was called building the battleship uh, in the cell to continue the resistance. And even when they were hosed down or they were taken out and beaten them, uh, this was a component in their, uh, in their victories. They simply morally were stronger. Conditions in the jails were awful, yet the IWW kept coming. That really was the hallmark of the IWW's free speech fight. It was the ability that when repression was the greatest and when the jails were full, and still hundreds of people came from all over the country you know, to go to jail, to be beaten on the head, uh, to risk the vigilantes. So in San Diego, you had business leaders, known champions of, of progress and business and all those things coming out in support of the workers who were being repressed and of their freedom of speech right. Uh, that had the effect of uh, lots of other people besides workers uh, buying into the notion that people shouldn't be brutally repressed just for speaking out. George Marston, a local business leader, had actually advocated for the city to find an alternative location for the protesters to be able to gather together and be able to be heard as well as not create a traffic jam in that stingery district if that was the city's problem. And it's no coincidence that it's his youngest daughter, Helen, who goes on to found the ACLU of San Diego in 1933. Abram Sauer, who was the editor of the San Diego Herald, had published an editorial that criticized the vigilante violence, and he was kidnapped by a group of vigilantes who took him out into a remote area of town hung him on a tree with his toes dangling just above the ground and threatened his life if he spoke about it at all or published his newspaper ever again in San Diego. Another critical figure in the IWW free speech fight was the Re Reverend George Woodby. George Woodby was born a slave in the 1850s in Tennessee and came to California after a period of political activism for both the Republican and Democratic parties, after which he became disillusioned and became a socialist and a minister in the Black Baptist Church. He came to San Diego in 1902 and was among the most active of the socialist agitators here in San Diego and was a regular figure on Soapbox Row. When the free speech fight began, he was among the first of the arrestees and one of the leaders of the San Diego Free Speech League. Oh, I went to a bar and I asked for a drink. He gave me a glass and he showed me the thing. Hallelujah, I'm a bum. Hallelujah, bum again. Hallelujah, give us a handout to revive us again. I try to teach political science from an activist point of view. I think that um, this particular event, the free speech fight in San Diego, is an excellent vehicle for explaining ideas of democracy, um, ideas of um, you know, radical action, a radical history that often many of our students have never heard of. The free speech fight gives them a local vision, and it's a vehicle for us to make that discussion kind of come to life. They can walk around downtown and see 
the places where people spoke like Emma Goldman and others. It was here in 1912 where Emma Goldman and her lover Ben Reitman came to San Diego on the train to speak. When they got off the train, they were met at the station by a mob of women screaming, give us the anarchist murderess, we'll tear out her guts. The crowd was so seemingly dangerous that Goldman and Reitman had to be escorted up Broadway to the U.S. Grant Hotel. This image is really striking because here we have a woman anarchist coming to support the free speech fight, being met by other women on the other side of, of a class divide, I suppose. Goldman was was coming to speak to and for working class voices. And it seems to me that the women who met her at the station, that they would go out of their way to meet her at the station, were there to protect their own interests. That a more egalitarian society would cut into their privilege as of what, kept women or, or whatever it is that they, they were. Once at the hotel, Goldman negotiated with Mayor Wadham and Police Chief Wilson for the right to speak from a second story window to the mob assembled across the street in the park. During this negotiation, Reitman was kidnapped by vigilantes, taken north to, to a place near Penasquitos, forced to run the gauntlet, tortured horribly. He had IWW burned into his buttocks with a cigar. They tried to tar and feather him, and they also tried to sodomize him. What's interesting to me about this is that rather than taking Goldman north and tarring and feathering and raping her, they instead took her, her partner, her companion, her male companion. Um, I'm not sure exactly what to make of this, but uh, it, is, it was a way, it ended up terrorizing Reitman so that when they came back in 1913 and still weren't allowed to speak, when she came back in 1915, he was unable to set foot in San Diego again. The incredible violence and terrorism of the free speech fight on the part of the vigilantes and the, and the, the powers that be in San Diego during this period is interesting because you could have argued that they could have just said, go ahead and speak on the soapbox. There's not many IWW members in San Diego. We'll just ignore you and eventually you'll go away. So really what was going on here was not, there was no real legitimate threat of a revolution happening in San Diego in 1912. So the violence was really more about a deep-seated anxiety on the part of the elites and those who were perhaps aligned with the elites, wanted to be part of that, that they didn't want San Diego to be the kind of city that had a militant, radical, well-organized working class. Um, I think there's two reasons why there was so much brutality in the San Diego free speech fight. One has to do with the politics of the progressive era. While the progressive era sought in many ways to change the morality of politics in the United States, it sought to change the morality of politics in a way that did not change the established political economic order. And there was a lot of anxiety due to the changing relationship of both gender and ethnic relations. Uh, women had just obtained the vote in California at this time, and San Diego was also experiencing the All right, let's take a little break here. This is the uh, about San Diego free Starring local San Diego artists and political figures. Um, 
And the question is always, why is there such hostility? Why did they, the goons, how could it be that they could just terrorize people, be supported in doing it? What was the hatred? These are like white people against white people. Mexican people, workers. <coughs> against white people, white masters. And I think he hits it on the head. I think Miller hits it on the head. It's that they didn't want San Diego to be a place that had a strong labor movement. Okay, let's continue on. A few more minutes here. Beginning of large-scale Mexican migration in the aftermath of the outset of the Mexican Revolution, which upset the uh, notion that many white conservative San Diegans from the Midwest and the East held of a utopia on the ocean. I teach women's issues in the American political process at San Diego State, and not many of our students there are aware of you know the the impact that women, although they were a minority and those that were participating in the free speech fight here in San Diego, the impact that they had um, in really challenging social and gender norms in speaking out and putting themselves on the line and contradicting much of the kind of you know um, rhetoric of the day about women not participating or not believing in this fight. I think the second critical reason why there was so much brutality during the San Diego free speech fight was because the IWW in their stated politics and in their actual practice crossed the color line and purposefully tried to destroy the Jim Crow system of labor that was being developed in the Southern California at that time, which unlike the Southeast and the Southwest was developed on Mexican labor as an underclass. The extremity of the violence has always puzzled me in the vigilantes' response to the free speech fight and to the wobblies, um, to the activists uh, who they pulled off the streets and terrorized. It's so over the top. It's so um, incredible that, that people would be kidnapped, uh, driven north, and so horribly maimed and abused and subjected to often sexual torture, as well as being beaten and left for dead. Just the very thought of there being a kind of parity between classes, between races, between men and women, um, sent these, these, these men into such an almost sexual panic. Um, actually, it wasn't almost a sexual panic. In, in many cases, it, it was had to have been a full-blown one for some of the things that they did to people's bodies. It's important to emphasize that the IWW is probably the most nonviolent labor organization in American history. American workers have a long and noble tradition of fighting back with arms if need be, but the IWW very early on uh, <clears throat> recognized that when you're organizing the most powerless workers, migrant workers, homeless workers, uh, Nonviolence, not as a, a moral principle, but as a strategy, was the most effective. And though they were calumniated and associated with violence, in fact, the IWW pioneered uh, so much of the passive resistance later used by the anti war movement and by the civil rights movement. There is power, there is power in a band working folk when we stand. 
rights and power that must rule in every land. One industrial union grand. While repression shut down the soapboxes at Fifth and E temporarily, the right to free speech was eventually restored to San Diegans in 1915, when the ban was overturned and legal picketing was established as a basic right. Today, anyone who enjoys the right to assemble, protest, and speak in public in San Diego has the Free Speech League of the Progressive Era to thank for fighting for, to maintain the basic rights of all San Diegans. And in fact, nationally, the San Diego free speech fights are the beginning of the historical record of the ACLU, or at least it's the case that the earliest documents in the National Archives of the ACLU uh, is 400 pages about the San Diego free speech fights. Well, it's funny because when we started to plan for our 100th celebration of the IWW fights, Occupy wasn't yet happening. And so we were talking about free speech in, in almost a um, situation that was one which we had won. And so um, we were going to celebrate. We were going to ask the city council to uh, apologize for the very oppressive laws that they had passed here in San Diego and really celebrate the fighting of those laws and labor's role in that battle. And it's funny, over the last few months, of course, a new battle has emerged and, and a new battle over the right to, uh, to, to assemble and the right to speak. And so it's, it's timely, of course, to once again take on the, the structure of San Diego. We will not let the 1% divide us. Right. We will not let them pit the unemployed against the employed. That's right. One of the most important things about the Occupy movement has been bringing about a language that most Americans had prior to this not understood. Um, really discussions of rich and poor, the idea of disparity of wealth, um, seeing real true inequality and understanding ways of actually discussing it um, even in the mainstream to a degree that hasn't been occurring prior to that. So that's why the Labor Council is involved with this. Um, as far as Occupy, we thought it was great and, and endorsed it immediately because we've been talking about income inequality for for oh, well over um, the last few years and to get the kind of attention that Occupy has by talking about who really caused this economic crisis. You know, it being the banks and Wall Street and not our third grade teachers, not our college professors, not our trash truck drivers. We think that's important and it's an important thing to continue to highlight. You know, throughout history, the IWW was huge down here and working with the Wobblies across the border over in Mexico. This is at the turn of the century. People died down here. Uh, that was a three-year struggle just to get some of the illegal municipal codes they had against workers' rights and people being able to live free and, and secured and having First Amendment rights here. It took them three years to get through, but ultimately they did. They were victorious. We're sure this movement is going forward as well. One percent is mighty powerful. It's not going to be an easy struggle, but we're here for the distance and uh, we're growing. Every time they crush us, we come out like this the day after. It's encouraging now the broad spectrum, political spectrum of people who look back on the free speech fights and thank labor for bringing about greater free speech, who recognize that what happened was wrong. Um, Republicans, Democrats, liberals, conservatives all recognize the value of free speech, and that's worth um, celebrating. <laughs> I'm a stranger here.
Talking Heads, <clears throat> a short history of a free speech movement in um, San Diego. I need to add that in 2012, the city of San Diego officially as a way it treated the free speech and issued a plaque. Point where where most of it happened center like it's you know there today there was an official acknowledgement didn't do much good hundred and some odd years later but it was done and there were people who insisted on it being done done. Okay, this is the B, and you're listening to Labor and Love Radio here on Mutiny Radio. Twenty, we're at twenty-seven eighty-one Twenty-first Street, and our favorite Mexican restaurant is Los Arritos. Our favorite restaurant, period, is Los Arritos. So go on down to Los Arritos. Have a great night. Okay, let's take a break now. We're up at the 11 o'clock hour, and we've still got a lot lot of things to talk about here, a lot of things to uh, refer to. Back in a few minutes. Thank you. 
Radio Labor, our worldwide connection to what's going on in other countries with working people and their campaigns. Let's listen up. News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, November 3rd, 2023. I'm Mark Bolache. In the report this week, a special program on the effects of artificial intelligence on education. The Labor Start report about union events and singing. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union till the day I die. This is Radio Labor. Artificial intelligence is being touted as a new way of providing education. But a recent report commissioned by Education International warns that it may be used to degrade the quality of education, worsen working conditions for teachers, and provide inferior schooling for students. EI is the Global Union for Teachers and Other Educators. It represents 32 million teachers and education support personnel in 178 countries. The new report is entitled The Unintended Consequences of Artificial Intelligence and Education. It was written by Wayne Holmes, an associate professor at University College London. I asked Mr. Holmes how AI technologies can replace teachers. I don't think AI can replace educators. That's my general point. The problem is that the history of the research of AI and education for 40 plus years now has all been about how can we automate what teachers do. Uh, Benjamin Bloom came up with the notion that having one-to-one tuition is much better for learning than when students are in a group situation. But the problem is that we can't have one-to-one tuition for every individual student. We don't have enough teachers. So the argument was, well, can we not use artificial intelligence to develop automated teachers? one-to-one for every student. So that's the background. But the problem is that what those tools do is actually very little compared to what a human teacher does. So as far as I'm concerned at the moment, there is no way that any AI tool that exists today is capable of replacing a human educator. But nevertheless, they are attempting to replace teacher function. And I've lost track of the number of times I've been at a big conference where a commercial AI edtech company will stand up and say, we believe that the teacher is the most important person in the classroom. And they spend 30 seconds telling us that, and then they spend 29 minutes and 30 seconds telling us how their tool is better than a teacher. So we have that pressure from the commercial sector, and we also have the pressure from policymakers and the school leadership team who are keen to go beyond human teachers if only they could because the AI doesn't go on strike, the AI doesn't need a holiday, the AI doesn't get sick. But if we could use AI, then that would be fantastic. Now, most of the people in the AI research community only believe that the tools they develop are useful for, I don't know, 10 minutes a day. But the emphasis we're getting elsewhere from the commercial sector and from policymakers is that these tools can eventually do the job of teachers. 
the reality is they simply cannot. So it's important we think about these issues so we don't sleepwalk into a situation where suddenly we do have situations where in a physical classroom the students are engaging with an AI tool and the adult human in the room, their job is just to switch the criminal and maintain behaviour. If we're not careful, that's the direction we could end up. How could AI be used ethically and effectively to help educators in their work? We need to think about what are the actual problems that educators face on a daily basis. As I say, most of the research has been about automating what teachers do. My argument is that we should reconfigure that, change back trajectory, and be thinking about, well, how can we use these technologies to actually support teachers? to help teachers do what teachers believe are the problems that need to be addressed in the classroom. What can that involve? Well, I'm not being trite, but I think we need to speak to far more teachers to establish exactly what they need from these technologies. Now, a big caveat for that, most people are aware of now chat GPT and the other generative AI that exploded into the scene just a year ago. And these tools are being sold not only as tools to support students, but also as tools to support teachers for things like lesson planning or preparing notes to slide. Now, like anything that is a short, it can be helpful, but being a shortcut means all the nuances, all the subtlety, all the expertise gets washed down. So we need to be really careful when teachers engaging with the tools that we have access to today to make sure that they're really critical with the outputs that they're being provided and that they only use them when they really do genuinely support what the individual educator is trying to achieve. One of the issues that Radio Labor has reported on is the use of educational tools designed by big, huge companies in Africa. What they do is they supply the educational material, maybe video, maybe sound, maybe books, whatever, but then they hire people who are not trained. They barely have a high school education. Do you think that's what's going to happen with AI? It's a, it's a really good point. Some time ago, I was um, speaking with people from the x a big challenge-based organization in the USA that sets out you know, million-dollar prizes for groups tackling big problems. And one big problem they set up was an AI system to replace a teacher. And I said to them, this is crazy. You know, you're, you're misunderstanding the role of a human teacher in a classroom. It's not just about getting across certain facts or information or training in certain skills. It's much more complex than that. It's about relationships, about collaboration. It's about enabling young people to become the best they can become to self-actualize and to develop a young people who can contribute effectively to the society they're a part of. Education is not just about getting this information across. But they stopped me in my tracks and said, well, hang on a second. What about rural areas of developing countries where they don't have human teachers that can do what we've just been talking about? Surely we should be using the technology in those circumstances. And when they said that to me, I was a bit confused. I didn't know how to respond to that because how could I stand there and say we shouldn't have AI in those settings because 
in those settings, teachers don't exist. But, as you point out, that very often there are adults in those settings. The problem is that those adults, for whatever reason, haven't had the training or support that they need become experienced and qualified and competent educators. So if we put these tools into those situations, the Arbonne, well, then surely that's going to help the children. And those children, they have a human rights education. Surely that's going to help. But it forgets lots of things. Firstly, lots of these places we're talking about, they don't have electricity. But how's the tech going to work? Well, let's imagine they do have electricity. They often don't have the internet. But how are they going to connect? And let's imagine they do have the internet as well. Often they don't have uh, professionals there who are capable of fixing the technologies, the laptops, whatever, or the phones, when they stop working. And we all know these tools stop working all the time. So without that, these tools are just going to work for a few months, they're going to break, they're going to sit on the shelf and not be used anymore. For an extended version of my interview with Professor Holmes, visit the Radio Labor website. A copy of the report is available on the Education International website at ei-ie.org. Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. This week, our top stories section included links to the International Federation of Journalists, the Global Union Federation for Media Workers, call for Israel to protect journalists in Gaza as its offensive there continues. To date, an average of one journalist has died each day since the Hamas attack. The International Federation of Journalists and 70 media unions and journalist support organizations around the world are demanding that Israel live up to its obligation to protect journalists in the field. Other top stories this week include the launch of this year's Black Friday actions against Amazon as the Make Amazon Pay movement will see strikes at the company's facilities in several countries. And we carried a fair bit of coverage of the end of the auto sector strikes in the United States. The success of the union's innovative staged approach to the strikes is not only benefiting UAW members, but is already having an effect on non-union car makers, where wage increases quickly followed the end of the strikes. A random sample from our news pages includes articles about the clashes between protesting Foxconn workers and Chinese police, and significant changes to the laws governing maternity leave and the formations of trade unions in Bangladesh. These positive changes came the same week a garment worker was shot dead by Bangladeshi police during a rally in support of the demand by unions for a 200 euro per month minimum wage in the textile sector. But my favorite top story of the week was about the role played by domestic workers, most of them women, in and from the Caribbean in building the institutions of the global labor movement. Speaking of women trade union dynamos, on our Working Women news pages this week, you'll find a story from India about the push for proper toilet facilities on construction sites there. The details are different, but the struggle by women builders is the same the world over. In the past month alone, we've seen similar stories about identical struggles from Canada, South Africa, Australia, and Argentina. Stories appearing on our health and safety page in Newswire this week include a study of unsafe conditions and forced labor on small coastal freighters sailing up and down the African coast, 
strategies and tactics for addressing workplace violence in Canadian healthcare settings, and an effort by Cambodian unions to eliminate the use of asbestos there that is funded by Australian unions. Our current photo of the week is a shot of just one of many rallies that marked a one-day national strike by women workers in Australia 10 days ago. Labour Start hosts online solidarity actions at the request of unions around the world. This week we'd like to highlight an urgent appeal for online solidarity with trade union activists in Georgia. If you can spare just a few seconds, you can do your part in this struggle by sending a solidarity message. Look for details of this and other campaigns on our site. This is Derek Blackhatter from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now, here for all the world's nurses and their supporters is I'm Sticking to the Union. There once was a union nurse who saw things had gotten worse. She noticed lots of work shift slots left blank by the boss who held the purse with only half a crew. He said, you'll bear the work of two. Standards fell, she had to tell that boss just what she'd do. Oh, you can't scare me, I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Oh, you can't scare me, I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union till the day I die. This union nurse was wise to the company's rotten lies. The takeaways, co-pays, and ways that Bay State tries to downsize. Nurses give their all, but they can't always be on call. So when the strike vote came around, she boldly stood her ground. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union till the day I die. They offer lousy deals and they're digging in their heels. When will there be a weekend free for friends and family? Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Nurses work is hard, but if you show your union card, though bosses cut staff to the bone, you will not walk alone. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union. Oh, you can't scare me. I'm sticking to the union. I'm sticking to the union till the day I die. And that's it, international labor news you can use. You can find our newscasts, feature stories, and English lessons for trade unionists at radiolabor.net. I'm Mark Belanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about global solidarity. Actors' Union is awaiting a response Friday. Because 90s nostalgia is coming in hot. Our team looks forward to continuing bargaining with the companies tomorrow.
Screen Actors Guild, American Federation of Television and Radio Artists, <clears throat> said in a statement released Thursday night, the union described its <clears throat> TV theatrical negotiating committee as being on standby Thursday, waiting a response from the Alliance of Motion Picture Television Producers. Union is seeking to place limitations on the use of AI to create actors' likenesses and performance, while the AMPTP has advocated for informed consent pay in situations performance digitally replicated. It's all Studios have warned that unless a deal is reached this week and the strike has lasted 113 days, the longest in history, it will be impossible for the broadcasters to salvage half a season of scripted television, according to the entertainment. So that's about where that's at. This has uh, been going back and forth now. It says 113 days. It's been going back and forth. It seems that the studio studios have realized, you know, that they've got to get hard about it, tough about it. They don't want to give up those advantages. Twenty twenty four movie season is increasingly in peril as more and more films have been delayed in twenty twenty five. Group the union's other demands including include general wage increases, boosts in compensation for successful streaming programs and improvements in health and retirement benefits. Um, so that's about that. I mean, that's, that's where the uh, actors are. And they're holding out. So far, they've held out. And there are stories around about how people are losing their livelihood, living, losing their homes and spread of losing their homes. Still hanging tough. Okay, labor history. Situation room. I guess we have to deal with the situation. Gaza City.
talk a, a little the origin of the Palestine Israel conflict by a Jewish group and uh, purporting to be open minded and going into this just to read find out about anyway about closure. And it's by an Israeli writer named Gideon Levy. Levy says, this is an Israeli journalist. Just an hour's drive from Jerusalem, a cruel drama has been underway for the past five months, the likes of which have not been seen since the early period of the Israeli occupation. But the majority of Israelis are taking absolutely no interest in it. Iron grip of the closure in its new format is increasingly strangling a population of 2.8 million people. Yet no one is saying a word there. It has been said starkly and simply, there has never been a closure like this before of this previous intifada when the IDF was in every corner and a curfew reigned was supreme. There was not a situation in which a whole people was jailed. Israel has split the West Bank by means of hundreds of trenches, dirt ramparts, and concrete fuses have been placed at the entrance Burma Road, Star Burma, breakthrough of circumstances, already rocky. Population Soldiers have often opened fire on. of Palestine, Palestinians, because of the present closure, means stress upon current siege came from appalling operations quickly. So people have their reasons for in one side or another, I guess I can say I I just want the kids to be safe first before anything. Let the children be safe first. Uh, as for that, you know, um, it's clear that the founding of Israel was based on a promise made by two European white men. And uh, 
developed from there. Hey, we, hey, the British said we could have this country. We're going to go there. We're going to take this country over. We're going to make this a power in the Middle East. Solidly on the side of owning class. 1% of the world. Okay. history. Okay, let's play this by habituation. The celebs to speak. <laughs> I mean, it had been about a week and you didn't see specifically calls for ceasefire or mentioning anything about what was going on. I think the most famous person that maybe said something, I think Rami Youssef posted photos from a shoot or a trip that he went on to Gaza. Like, I think that's that is the most we got. Obviously, John Cusack. Obviously, Susan Sarandon. I put them a little bit <laughs> in a different allies. category. They're stalwart allies. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're allies. You we know, have their signature already as like a template. Like. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I got to get John on this show at some point. <laughs> I could get um, John on this show. I'll tell okay, you. hell yeah, that dude retweets me all the time. But anyway, so other yeah. than that, I was like, who else? And you even saw again, like even Arab American, uh, like. Uh, celebrities and 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 South Asian celebrities sort of quiet on this issue. Yeah. Um, you know, obviously say nothing of DJ Khaled, who I feel like everyone's like, "Yo, when will DJ Khaled say anything?" <laughs> That's going to be his biggest hit to watch. You'll see. Oh my God, he's going to come in like a year of bombing. He'll be like, "It's time to write a song for peace." Like, oh, dude. Um, and but, another one that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So this was interesting, though. Um, I'll bring it up on our side here because this then came out, I think, earlier this week, um, which is this call for a ceasefire, artists for ceasefire, specifically saying ceasefire, again, a dirty word in Congress, a dirty word unless you, you know, are part of the squad, um, a word that was said to uh, warned about in the State Department, do not say this word, do not say de-escalation, but a word, of course, that the United Nations has called for um, and that the, United, uh, that the United States vetoed. So this is... You know, artists and advocates, da 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 da. They're calling. They say you, United States Congress, UNICEF, Doctors Without Borders, the Red Cross. They're saying, please, international law, stop the killing, stop the bombing. Um, they also ask for a safe release of hostages. Um, who, if anyone knows anything about hostage situations, usually bombing the places where hostages are doesn't help. Um, and there were a lot of folks. I mean, Adam McKay, that's sort of a, you know, a no brainer. But Alyssa Milano, happy to see that. Uh, Ani DeFranco, I mean, come on, girl, you bit you like got people woke to Palestine. <laughs> Fuck out of here. No, but, um, you know, um, obviously, Basim Yusuf, oh, but like, boots, of course, boots, of course. But you've got look, Kate Blanchett. Let's go with some A-listers. Um, I mean, oh, Diplo, you got Dua Lipa on here, mm -hmm. right? Oh, yeah. Um, She's always Florence Pugh, here we go. That's a B plus, A minus, that's an A lister. Hassan Minhaj, uh, yeah. Jeremy Strong, very exciting. Ilana Glazer, again, progressive Jew right there. Kristen Stewart, pretty good. Macklemore, bro. Oh, he did a whole thing. On. Like he did a, didn't he do a song? He did something. He like, did like an anti racist song. Or Mandy Patinkin, this is good. Mahershala Ali, Mark Ruffalo. I mean, that was mm -hmm. a no brainer. But like Oscar Isaac, Natalie Merchant, girl, I see you. 
Um, so like Riz Ahmed, so Sandra O, oh, on and on and on. Mm. This is really, really good. That's but then cool. interestingly, just the other day, there's another celebrity oh. open letter. And right. they're asking for something. They're asking for a full release of all the Hamas hostages, which is weird because they're sending it to Joe Biden. <laughs> like, yeah, I'm, I'm sure. I don't know how many. Uh, what 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 car does Joe drive? That is it a Trans Am or IROC Z? What is it? But uh, I don't know how many hostages he could fit in there. <laughs> but he should he should go down and, and release the hostages. How many can fit on his like you know three speed bike? Like yeah. one in a little basket. Um, carrying folks around. Uh, no, so these are like maybe arguably bigger names. You got Madonna, you got Gwyneth, you got Bradley Cooper, that is. You got Chris Rock. And the letter is weird. It echoes, again, sort of an unproven claim about a bunch of beheaded infants, um, which has, again, not been proven. Um, then And then there's like, we want, thank you for your unshakable moral conviction and leadership and support for the Jewish people who have been terrorized by Hamas since the group's founding. Yada, yada, yada. We it's, all... It's such an insult to the hostages to to bomb them and also to erase here. It says 17 years that the group has been governing Gaza. That's the 17 years that Gaza was sealed by Israel. This is just a vehicle to use celebrities who don't know better. Uh, in this case, uh, these celebrities don't know better to as a vehicle to erase uh, the siege of Gaza that's occurred for that 17 years right. and also apartheid <laughs> since right. 40, you know, 48. Absolutely. This this was like, yo, we will give all y'all access to like, you know, the biggest uh venues in tel aviv the next time you come tour <laughs> yeah bradley cooper who did that movie of that war criminal uh erasing his war crimes what's his name kyle is uh, this where he put on a prosthetic nose no that's another one <laughs> <laughs> i mean come on you uh, want to talk about anti-semitic yeah. <laughs> bradley cooper with a goddamn prosthetic nose you fucking anti-semite trying to be a jew with a prosthetic nose <laughs> He's like already kind of has a long nose. So it's just like the fact that he had to add, he's like, no, I must, I must, I need, I need enhancements. Um, there's a bunch of other, and it's funny because you wonder like what of these, like Jessica Biel, Zoe Saldana, like did they not get, like which one came first? Are there people who signed the first one who are like, fuck, you know? Um, but anyway, it, it's neither here nor there, but I think you're exactly right that it's not that Gwyneth was like, I'm penning a letter. It was like, this was a deliberate PR move from Israel that and they got a, all, all these A-listers to sign on. It reminds me and I know he he is canceled in my book and fuck him in my book because of his anti-trans hate but of you know the famous Chappelle bit of taking oh, yeah. hostages who are brown you know oh, like yeah. Yeah. that you don't take brown <laughs> hostages because nobody negotiates for them and then it's just so like biting and scary because you're like yeah. look at these you know almost 200 hostages still who, you know, despite the celebrities' cries to release them, it's like, who is actually working to release them, you know? Um, are they seen as expendable? Um, and that uh, formerly, and still canceled comic, uh, Dave Chappelle, did scream at his fans mm. um, after uh, someone in the audience accused, uh, basically said boo when he accused Pal uh, Israel of, of war crimes. And then oh, he was like, yeah, wow. he was like, get out of my show. What are you doing? <laughs> wow. Um, Fans walk out after Dave Chappelle accuses Israel of war crimes, U.S. of supporting slaughter. 
Of course, this is a certain headline, but uh, other headlines are like, Dave Chappelle heckled and then handled it. And apparently there were there was a lot of applause. Yes, he wa- he's mm. he's doing stadium, so he walked some of the audience. Just, but a lot of a lot no, of no one tell Dave there's there's trans Palestinians. Like do not <laughs> yeah, tell him. No do not me. tell him. This must be protected. <laughs> oh God. Um, you know, and that that is sort of I don't want to go into all of them, but like, you know, you've got in terms of the comedians, you've got Amy Schumer kind of losing her goddamn mind. And oh, I have dude. to say this was this was the kind of the one of the worst that she posted on Instagram. So John Marco Sarezi, who's been on this show multiple times, he finally tweeted this out. He's like, <laughs> "This is like you know a star of David," and it says, first they came for the LGBTQ, oh, and I stood okay. up because love is love. Then they came for immigrants, and I stood up because families belong together. Oh. Then they came for Black community, and I stood up because Black Lives Matter. Then they came for me, but I stood alone because I am a Jew. And it's just like, <sighs> there's so much wrong with this. The transactional solidarity there. There's people who are like, why did I ever mm. give to Black Lives Matter? Why did I ever support mm. them if they're not going to, you know, be in full support of Israel? But then it's like, did no one stand? Is no one standing up for Israel? I'm sorry. <laughs> like, there I is, miss there, that. There is a, a, a nuance here um, that sure. explains but doesn't justify, right? Like what they are doing, like what, how, why they're so triggered. One of mm-hmm. it is kind of interesting because early on, there were images of the hand gliders. Yes. And early on, there was this image of a bulldozer passing the fence. Um, and to Gazan Palestinians in Gaza, uh, I don't like to say Gazans because, and a lot of Palestinians tell me don't say Gazans because they were all over, everyone in Gaza used to be all over Israel. And right. then they were pushed into in this concentration area. Right, right. Or area or... Enclave, know. as okay. according to a lot of media. Enclave. <laughs> Territory, yeah. Camp, camp? Ghetto. Camp? Uh, maybe camp. Uh, mm-hmm. Prison, yeah. unclear. Um, so, yeah, so they were pushed in there. And uh, initially, a lot of groups like BLM Chicago and all these other groups celebrated a prison break. Uh, right. They didn't, they didn't, they're not connecting it to these stories that were coming out. Our media is very... Hey, that's... Uh... <clears throat> Francesca Fiorentini discussing the celebrities who uh, have come out for Israel or haven't have been uh, more to the Palestinians. Locally, okay, there is a there is a campaign going on right now with San Francisco teachers. Educators of San Francisco with SFUSD in the district. They've been pretty successful. They got most of what they wanted. They did get a lot of money. This is this is SFUSD offering on October second. Every teacher get a $10,000 ongoing raise for the 23-24 school year, which means new teachers will immediately receive more than a 15% increase. That's very good. That's going to save some families and be the difference between struggling and getting over.
Every SFUSD teacher and paraeducator an additional 4% one-time salary increase for 24-25. This may be converted to an ongoing salary increase for certain conditions regarding the district's budget financial status if the district can find the money to do UESF accept these proposals. It's a minor step for SFUSD to attract and retain qualified educators. Okay, so that's that's about that. this point, up to November 8th, the teachers are voting on a contract offer, so we'll kind of hold off on that one, but what the district has offered looks like it's enough, and uh, we'll see about that one. Keep an eye on that one. This is the B, and you're listening to Labor and Love Radio. And it's almost time to go. Time goes by fast when you're having fun. Stay tuned, if you will, for Flat Black Plastic. The innovative and informed Scott Walker. All right, remember, uh, let's see a little bit of the Walter Ruther. Life of Walter Ruther. American workers than any other leader in the labor movement. He spent his life ensuring American workers have a voice at the table with management, a voice still exercised today by workers in contract negotiations that will affect millions of working families. Walter Ruther's legacy lives on with those who believe in the rights of work and families and with supporters of social and economic justice. I do want to welcome each of you into this family that we call the UAW. So we've got a big family. And people say, what really is the UAW about? Well, it's very simple. We are about working people, about their problems and their needs about their grievances, about their gripes, about their hopes and their aspirations, and about their dreams. And we have learned that when people work together, they can do many things they cannot do in their separate capacities. Abraham Lincoln, who I think was not only one of the great presidents of the United States, but was one of the great philosophers of America, said many things that have stood the test of history. And one of the things that he said when describing the purpose of government, he said the purpose of government in a free society is to create an instrument by which people working together can do things that are impossible for them to do in their separate capacities. And that's what the union is all about. It's about... Who was Walter Ruther? 
labor card for him. This last one that we were playing was a little ponderous. Stuck up. Stuffed shirt. Okay, who was Walter Reuther? Reuther is one of the first heads of the United Auto Workers when they reorganized in the 1930s. Famous for a number of reasons. The big struggle was in the 30s to unionize the big auto workers, automakers. And uh, Luther was instrumental in that, the whole UAW. They were wise enough to understand that people like Henry Ford would try to divide them along racial lines. Employers often do. Employers often use that as a weapon. The UAW went out and hired black organizers and put them in positions of power and their Walter Ruther himself uh, was known as a liberal. But with that word liberal came the the warning light, the yellow light for those who know the situation. He was a liberal, but he was not a radical. He had radical ideas and voiced them. But when push came to shove, and the major unions were required to kick communists Luther was one of the biggest red baiters of that. Enough said. Okay, this is the B. We're going out with some smooth piano music. Wish you health and happiness. Have a good week. Good work. Like I say, stay tuned for Scott.
Namaste. Every Monday at 6 p.m., it's Joke Workshop, streaming live on mutinyradio.fm. Lift the veil from your third eye on joke creation and what it takes to be a stand-up comic in the five shakasanas of San Francisco's comedy scene. This all-ages open mic invites comedy. Oh, pre-sign by Venmoing 2 to $5 at Mutiny Radio. Join us live for a small and special audience at the Mutiny Radio studio and gallery performance space, 2781 21st Street at Florida Street in the deep, deep, deep mission. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Does my ponytail look cool? Thank you. Namaste. Tuesday used to be the most unlikely night for fun. But every week at 6 p.m., come to OMG's Tuesday Open Mic. And see comics work out new material for free. For free. They get your Tuesday night party on with two-for-one well drink specials during the 6 to 8 p.m. show. Check out Eventbrite to reserve your free seat every Tuesday, 6 p.m. At OMG on Savory 6th Street. Savory 6th Street. Show up to go up. Hey, kids. It's your pal, Spiderman. <laughs> Sorry, Spiderman. Mortimer Spiderman. When I'm not swinging through the senior facility, best in Mysterio at Boggle, or getting beautifully plowed by the Rhino, I'm headed down to Mutiny Radio at the corner of 21st and Florida. They got some schlemiels doing the laugh laugh. But hey, don't be a schmuck and donate 2 to $5 on... Hold, hold on, what is this? Let me get my glasses. The print's too small. Then Mo. That's not real. What is that, Swedish? You knew that, right? This is in San Francisco. I'll drown in on. It's nap time. Weekly comedy at the best neighborhood bar in the city. Join your friends from Mutiny Radio every Thursday at 8 p.m. at the Bar on Dolores at 29th and Dolores. Starting after any very important sports game that might happen to be on, you're guaranteed a night of laughter for free. And when paired with the drink specials and the nicest bartender in San Francisco, it'll become a Thursday ritual. Show up to go out for comics, and please reserve your free tickets on Eventbrite so we know you're coming to laugh. Comedy is the cheapest. Happy hour, the most free two hours of hour-long comedy on the radio and internet streaming live. Two seven eight one Twenty First Street. Come down, be in the audience. Dog friendly. Dog friendly. We are Mutiny Radio is absolutely dog friendly. Ooh, a dog party ain't no party like a dog party. <laughs> dog party at Mutiny Radio. Every Friday, dog party at Mutiny Radio. Happy hour. <laughs> Two seven eight one twenty first Street. Happy hour. Mutiny Radio. FM. Here in SF. 
calling all crusties, punks, and poses. Pick your posteriors up off the pavement, pack up your pins and patches, and prepare to party. The Pacific Northwest Vest Fest returns this Saturday only at the SeaTac Expo Center. Whether you're a leather lover or just a denim demon, if you're looking to dress to impress for less, do not stress. You'll find all the best in pre-distressed vests right here at the Pacific Northwest Vest Fest. With over 40 vendors selling countless crossover styles, you'll find the perfect thing for your scene. Metal, thrash, Walmart, high-vis, and everything in between. All in one place. One day only. Unless it's a jacket. If you need a jacket, take your square ass somewhere else. Never pay for fabric you don't need and ditch the sleeves, but save the rest for the Pacific Northwest Fest Fest this Saturday only at SeaTac. Bring a can of PBR and get it half price. Daddy, Daddy, what are we going to do today? At 2 p.m. on a Saturday afternoon? Oh, over there at the parklet in front of Atlas Cafe for Titans of Comedy. That, that's Titans of Comedy. Apparently, they've got great sandwiches, cafe drinks, and even some of my favorite beverages, like beer, wine, and sangria. All the things I drink to forget your mother. My new Uncle Blake says you smell like a brewery. What did I say about interrupting me? Anywho, right here on 20th and Alabama in the Deep Mission, paired with tasty comedy from Bay Area's favorite comics. For free! Every Saturday. Or at least the two Saturdays a month that the court mandates I have to see you. It's sunshine! And even in the drizzle, but not too much. And Daddy, remember after soccer practice when it was raining and you didn't come? I really don't. Anywho. You take it with the freezers. Reservations. Reservations on Eventbrite. Fucking. L-S-D. Fap. Acid and fapping. Fapping and acid. Acid fapping. Fapping and acid. Fap, 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 acid. Thank you. That song is called Acid and Fapping. San Francisco Mutiny Radio San Francisco Mutiny Radio Listen to live streaming radio Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go Listen to live streaming radio Or download a podcast and you can listen on the go. San Francisco Mutiny Radio. San Francisco. I was just leaving the theater. (laughs) 1969 gold Cadillac with the white interior. Oh, up here. And I started to do some thinking. Around in and on the freeway, and I'm having a really, really good time. Flat black glass. Smoking big spliffs and cruising. Saturday, noon two. On the freeway. Good feeling. I told you. Can I see? Henry, Blake. Henry. Yeah. Charlie here. Yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe. Uh, the dude minds, man. Captain Curls up in the head. Mutiny Radio Festival, Ahoy! <laughs> <laughs> 